You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. And, um, sorry? Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today we have our, our slightly smaller panel of Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. You know, we were talking a lot about Sawbones, and I, I think we probably lost most of that recording, but this is almost like a Sawbones episode. <laughs> Husband and wife team. Laura is the Justin McElroy in this situation. Oh, I don't want to be Justin McElroy. <laughs> well, you're providing the color commentary, I, and I'm the one who's prepared something. <laughs> yeah, but obviously people always want to be Sydney McElroy. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. So this is the promised bonus episode where Laura and I try to recreate the magic that was my segment from episode 147. Uh, I promise it was hilarious and there was much merriment. Yes, I will try to make up for three of us guffawing all over the place. <laughs> so uh, without further ado, let's uh, launch into uh, this discussion of the Flat Earth Conspiracy. Because we just can't get enough. We can't. I know we just we just talked about this two episodes ago, or maybe three, depending on how you count this episode. We just talked about this when we reviewed Behind the Curve uh, on episode 145. So epic. It was lots of fun, and we went into some of the arguments kind of, uh, yeah, I don't know, in some amount of detail. But I've been looking for quite a while for an excuse to read William Carpenter's breezy 1885 classic, 100 Proofs That the Earth is Not a Globe. Jim, I don't think you can qualify anything written prior to 1900 as breezy, okay? That's just not a thing that they did. I don't know, it only took me two hours. I drew myself a nice bath. Really got into the mood. Oh. The ebook of 100 Proofs is available for free via Project Gutenberg. I'll put a link in the show notes. And it is truly delightful. I can't remember the last time I had so much fun just reading something that was supposed to be work. I don't know. Carpenter manages to be the exact perfect amount of pompous and very wrong <laughs> that is, is just delightful. Like the foppery is immeasurable. So what you're saying is he would fit in well with today's pundits? Oh, yes. He would be a Fox News panelist if this were this were today. <laughs> So I'm not going to spend a lot of time debunking Carpenter's specific points, because to be honest, if you remember any of your high school physics, or if you paid any amount of attention two episodes ago, they, they mostly debunk themselves. But I, I am going to be quoting liberally from Carpenter, because it's just, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> so for context, this short book, uh, really more of a pamphlet, appears to have been written by Carpenter upon the death of his mentor, Samuel Robotham. Robotham, who wrote under the pseudonym Parallax, essentially founded the modern Flat Earth movement when he published Zetetic Astronomy, Earth, Not a Globe, in 1849. Okay. Carpenter's pamphlet takes the form of an open letter to the scientific community. Uh, Carpenter calls it a challenge to the Johns Hopkins University. 
And specifically, he challenges Richard A. Proctor, the accomplished 19th century astronomer to whom the book is dedicated. Proctor comes up all over the text. The author appears to see him as a sort of nemesis. There's some introductory text, but the bulk of the pamphlet is simply 100 numbered paragraphs, each detailing what Carpenter clearly believes to be an unassailable proof that the Earth is not, in fact, a globe. Oh, wow. A hundred. That's, that's a lot there, hey? It is a lot. Within the numbered lists, there are perhaps two dozen actual proofs, uh, or attempted proofs, <laughs> oh, uh, the majority of which are rephrased several times, uh, presumably with the aim of arriving at a full hundred in some sort of proof by verbosity. Gotta be a nice round number, right? Yep. Dwayne Gish would be proud. These numbered paragraphs are followed by some back matter, including a half dozen letters to prominent scientists, including two to Proctor, demanding that they respond to his proofs. You know, he spent, I don't know exactly what format this was originally printed, and it was self-published, but he's spent, you know, so many dozens of pages detailing all of these proofs, and he's like, I will afford you a full page to respond to all of the proofs, and you must discredit them all. (laughs) So his mentor was essentially the founder of the Flat Earth Movement. This guy, though, is there any reason to believe that any of these people whom he considers nemeses because of their beliefs, would have any idea who he is or anything? Or is he just essentially some guy off the street to them? Uh, He seems like he was just kind of a bit of, you know, a street corner crank. He had been known for publishing these sorts of tracts before, and he had been tilting at this particular windmill named Richard A. Proctor for quite a while. He had uh, aimed several of his books at him, from what I can tell. It's hard to know how much pull he actually had. It, the The pamphlet itself, uh, at least in the, I think the fifth edition is, is what um, we've got on Gutenberg, contains many glowing reviews from editorial boards of tiny town newspapers around the United <laughs> States. So he, he would mail these things out to everybody. The book actually ends uh, just prior to these glowing reviews. There's uh, he prints all of these letters that he's sent out to these various scientists. And uh, eventually, I think for the third edition, Proctor finally wrote him back. And the only thing that he had to say was, I rather fancy myself a student of astronomy rather than an astronomer. (laughs) He did not bother to even respond to any of the uh, proofs. Well, it sounds like Proctor probably has better things to do with his day. That's the thing. (laughs) Like, uh, I know it's funny. This is very much the, I wrote a blog post, I demand Neil deGrasse Tyson respond to it. Right. Uh, But in the comments only. (laughs) I will afford you a paragraph. Don't upstage me on my tiny little platform that I've made for myself. So Carpenter begins with uh, the familiar complaint that scientists are interested only in defending their theories rather than discovering truth. Quote, If man uses the senses which God has given him, he gains knowledge. If he uses them not, he remains ignorant. Mr. R.A. Proctor, who has been called the greatest astronomer of the age, says, The earth on which we live and move seems to be flat. Now, he does not mean that it seems to be flat to a man who shuts his eyes in the face of nature, or who is not in the full possession of his senses. No, but to the average, common-sense, wide-awake thinking man. I'm going to skip a bit here, because this is rather verbose. (laughs) Man after my own heart. (laughs) Damn, you ruined my joke! (laughs) 
Mr. Proctor knows right well what he is talking about, for the book from which we take his words, Lessons in Elementary Astronomy, was written, he tells us, to guard the beginner against the captious objections which have, from time to time, been urged against accepted astronomical theories. The things which are to be defended, then, are these accepted astronomical theories. It is not the truth that is to be defended against the assaults of error. Oh no, simply theories, right or wrong, because they have been accepted. Accepted! Why? They have been accepted because it was not thought to be worthwhile to look at them. You were, uh, you were channeling some David Hyde Pierce there. <laughs> <laughs> A little Niles Crane going on. You should be so lucky. <laughs> he is a babe. Oh boy. So Carpenter's obviously getting a, a little worked up here. Reading a little further, we can get a fuller sense of where his objections are actually coming from. That the Earth is an extended plain, stretched out in all directions away from the central north, over which hangs forever the North Star, is a fact which all the falsehoods that can be brought to bear upon it with their dead weight will never overthrow. It is God's truth, the face of which, however, man has the power to smirch all over with his unclean hands. Mr. Proctor says, we learn from astronomy that all these ideas, natural though they seem, are mistaken. Man's natural ideas and conclusions and experimental results are, then, to be overthrown by, what? By astronomy? By a thing without a soul? A mere theoretical abstraction? The outcome of the dreamer? Never! <laughs> so... Oh, man. And the, the thing is, he must have been writing it, hearing exactly that tone in his head. Yeah, I could see him just like tearing <laughs> through the page. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. In addition to his uh, theological objections, Carpenter returns again and again to the idea that if we cannot trust the evidence of our senses, all is lost. If the earth seem to be what it is not, how are we to trust our senses? And if it is said that we cannot do so, are we to believe it? and consent to be put down lower than the brutes? Ollie Thorne of Philosophy Tube points out that Carpenter is arguing for a philosophical position that's called direct realism, which holds that, contrary to the modern scientific understanding of the way the brain works, human beings do not simply construct a model of reality from their sense data and then experience that, but are instead able to directly experience the one true reality. Essentially, the world is as you see it. Direct realism has fallen out of fashion these days, which is probably why we have no trouble accepting that, say, optical illusions exist. And if yeah. you stick a straw in water, it does not suddenly split in half and uh, kink the, the yeah. way it appears to. Well, the whole, like, is this dress blue or white? That whole thing from a couple of years right. ago. Exactly. The dress can't be both the blue and black and the gold and white, you know? <laughs> Having read uh, a good deal of Carpenter, it seems to me that he would simply claim that the people who don't see it the way he does are lying. Okay. <laughs> He says oh, over and over again that Proctor knows that the Earth is flat, but simply wants to defend his theories. Oh, good. Conspiracy <laughs> theorists have never changed, have they? Nope. They, they really stuck to their roots. My brother Sean, who is a street magician, is probably thankful that direct realism has fallen out of favor uh, because uh, it protects him from being burned as a witch. Laura, you want to get to Carpenter's yes, arguments? Yes, please. Okay. So uh, these arguments tend to fall into like four rough categories, and you'll, you'll see this as we go. Uh, number one, you have the argument from incredulity or the appeal to common sense. 
Number two, we have these appeals to theology, which I've already alluded to. Um, he in- includes liberal quotes from the Bible that the earth has been stretched out above the waters and it being established that it cannot be moved. So, of course, the Copernican or Galilean systems can't be correct. Uh, number three, he th- there's a lot of equivocation and wordplay. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I'm going to save those for the end because they're, they're, they're some of the most fun proofs. And number four, we have uh, wild assertions of a uh, false premise. Uh, for example, he claims that lunar eclipses can't be caused by the shadow of the Earth on the face of the moon, uh, which is, you know, our understanding of how they happen. The Earth uh, is in between the sun and the moon, and so right. the moon goes dark, even though it's a full moon. But he claims that this this is not the way that they happen because lunar eclipses have taken place with both the sun and the moon above the horizon at the same time, which, I mean, I'm pretty sure that hasn't happened, but he's simply asserting that it has. And, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Nothing. Okay, Jem, you've been teasing me enough. Hit me with some of these numbered uh, proofs. (laughs) All right. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to give you all of them. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, I cut down this list a little bit. Laura promised me that if I got it under 10, she would bake me a pie. And I'm not going to get a pie. But let's soldier on. <laughs> so uh, the first argument we'll talk about is um, the Earth can't, can't be a globe because rivers don't flow uphill. Okay. Proof 85. There are rivers which flow east, west, north, and south. That is, rivers are flowing in all directions over the Earth's surface, and at the same time. Now, if the Earth were a globe, some of these rivers would be flowing uphill, and others down, taking it for a fact that there really is an up and a down in nature, whatever form she assumes. But since rivers do not flow uphill, and the globular theory requires that they should, it is proof that the Earth is not a globe. So the idea here is, he's imagining a ball, and... The ball has a top and a bottom. And so if the top is the north, then any uh, rivers that are flowing northward are flowing uphill because they're flowing toward the top. And rivers don't flow uphill. Therefore, the Earth can't be a globe. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of problems with that. I mean, one of them is also just the fact that geography on the ball makes a difference. But okay, go ahead. So he, he comes back to this time and again. He, he simply does not accept any, any theory that, uh, that gravity exists. And he, he seems actually, he doesn't, as far as I can recall, make this argument directly. But he seems very married to the idea that there is an absolute up and down. And I get the sense that this is a theological conviction. So he he needs to feel that there is a true absolute up and down, which we, you know, our understanding of physics is that there is not. But there must be because God is above and hell is below. Right. So mariners are a, are a common feature of, of this book. Circumnavigation of the globe being, you know, a, a thing. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Circumnavigation of the, the circle of the earth being a thing. <laughs> The, the model of the flat Earth that Carpenter is taking for granted, he takes from Parallax, which is the model that the flat Earthers uh, still use today with the central north and then the southern circumference uh, with the, you know, the ice wall, cue Game of Thrones music uh, around the outside. As far as I know, Carpenter did not imagine it was patrolled by CIA agents, but at the time there probably wasn't as much of a need for that planes not having been invented yet. Proof 8. If the Earth were a globe, 
a small model globe would be the very best because it is the truest thing for the navigator to take to sea with him. But such a thing as that is not known. With such a toy as a guide, the mariner would wreck his ship of a certainty. This is a proof that the Earth is not a globe. So he's arguing that uh, oh, <laughs> that the oh Earth my... can't be a globe because if it were a globe, mariners would just have like little toy globes in their pockets to navigate by. <laughs> right. Yeah. So no, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. It would be far too tiny to provide any useful information. Also, very difficult to produce with any amount of accuracy, particularly in his time or prior to that. Yep. So a paper map is the most logical thing. Yeah, and you know, you can fold it up. Yes. You you can have some maps that are at differing levels of detail for different uh, purposes. I'd love to see a um, a globe that manages to be as detailed as like the simplest folded paper map. Uh, I, I'm just imagining like the ship's cabin, they just walk in and it's just this giant sphere. It's, <laughs> it's absurd. I mean, that would be amazing. That would be really cool. However, he's also discounting any other navigation methods that they've used throughout the eons here. Things like navigating by stars. Apparently the map is the only thing and therefore that that proves that it's a flat Earth. No. Also mentioned, of course, is the fact that the horizon appears to be flat. Thus, uh, due to common sense or direct realism, it must be flat. And then we get into other uh, arguments from the maritime experience. Question. Does he have any seafaring experience? Well, he would to some degree because he was uh, an Englishman who emigrated to the United States. Sure, but what I mean is, does he have any experience actually participating in getting the boat from I, place to pay, I place? I can't imagine. As opposed to just being on said boat? <laughs> because I'm getting the feeling that he has a very idealized version of how seafaring works. Proof 28. Astronomers are in the habit of considering two points on the Earth's surface without, it seems, any limit to the distance that lies between them as being on a level and the intervening section, even though it be an ocean, as a vast hill of water. The Atlantic Ocean, in taking this view of the matter, would form a hill of water more than a hundred miles high. The idea is simply monstrous, and could only be entertained by scientists whose whole business is made up of materials of the same description. And it certainly requires no argument to deduce from such science as this a satisfactory proof that the Earth is not a globe. <laughs> so he's he's imagining that between England, for example, and Baltimore, where, which is, uh, I believe, where he ended up living, if you were to connect them by direct line, you would go through the sphere of the Earth, uh, assuming, of course, the Galilean model. And so in between them, there is this this hill of water, the Atlantic Ocean. And this, of course, is absurd. And that's just because he can't imagine how any of this works. What? Right. It's classic argument from incredulity. Yeah. <laughs> Proof 33. If the Earth were a globe, people, except those on the top, would certainly have to be fastened to its surface by some means or other, whether by the attraction of astronomers, that is to say, gravity, or by some undiscovered and undiscoverable process. But as we know that we simply walk on its surface without any other aid than that which is necessary for locomotion on a plane, it follows that we have herein a conclusive proof that the Earth is not a globe. 
He's really into ending all of his proofs with uh, the earth is not a globe, isn't he? Isn't it delightful? He says it a hundred (laughs) times. He came up with it once and he's just like this. This will be my hook. (laughs) This will get me to my word count. (laughs) Exactly. Okay. What is his theory for what keeps us on the top of this plane? And, and not just floating off into space, the that, hand of that, God? That, that it, well, no, he doesn't require one because he, he simply fails to consider that it would be any other way. So, like, he, he is saying that there isn't gravity, it is just the nature that we walk on the ground. There isn't anything holding us there because there doesn't have to be anything holding us there. <sighs> There there are no things, Horatio, other than those that are dreamed in his philosophy. Oh. I mangled that paraphrase, but you, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it just And it's like he's so close to opening up his eyes sometimes, and just he just shuts them so tight every opportunity. It's, oh, this guy's very frustrating. I could not have read this book. Go on, Jem. In a similar vein, uh, Proof 21 points out that Man's experience tells him that he is not constructed like the flies, which can live and move upon the ceiling of a room with as much safety as the floor. While in Proof 34, Carpenter waxes poetic, insisting that since we may travel to those parts of the earth where the people are said to be heads downwards, and still to fancy ourselves to be heads upwards and our friends whom we have left behind us to be heads downwards, it follows that the whole thing is a myth, a dream, a delusion, and a snare. (laughs) snare oh this is a moral crusade you see it really is oh my goodness the the globe heads are poisoning the minds of our children laura okay carpenter also makes several arguments from motion which will be familiar to our listeners from our discussion of behind the curve for instance he insists that if the earth were truly moving at hundreds of miles a minute the oceans would be blown away um which again gravity is a thing also there's no there's no uh, air in space that would like actually blow them away uh, but more to the point they're they're all within the moving reference frame so not only is right. the earth moving the oceans are moving too yeah yeah he just he he displays such a brazen failure to understand the basic movement of anything like like i'm curious what he would do if you took a bucket and filled it with water and just swung it around on your arm like would he be astounded that the water at the top at the top of the arc of your arm that the water did not come splashing down because it it doesn't yeah i mean we've all seen that those situations where you have a stationary bucket and you move it and all of a sudden the water goes flying out. But that's not what this is. We are moving. But if he just doesn't believe that we're moving, then I guess that makes sense. He also, there's these classic misunderstandings of physics where he he actually posits, you know, moving in a carriage and throwing a projectile up into the air. And he asserts that, that if you threw a projectile straight up, when you are moving in a carriage, that the projectile would fall behind you. But in fact, if you actually do this experiment, like if you're in a car, for example, and you throw a ball straight up, you know, just a little bit, the ball doesn't like hit you in the face when you're moving forward. It, from your perspective, appears to go up and down, straight up and down. But because you're moving at, you know, 60 kilometers per hour, from an outside observer, they would see the ball, even though you threw it up, it would continue forward as it goes up and down as well. That's so, and it's such an easy experiment to do. And he just fails to do it. 
He wrote more proofs instead. Yeah. <laughs> so these misunderstandings are understandable, I guess. Even for a learned person in 1885, he, he could have tried some of these things. Some of these things are more complicated. Of course, but of course. But people are still clinging to these proofs today to some extent. So, so there, there's one thing that actually I, I think I asked in episode 145. Um, I asked whether flat earthers, uh, or as Carpenter would have it, those dedicated to the zetetic philosophy whether they believe that all planets are disks or just the Earth. But this question, of course, betrayed my own ignorance in assuming that the Earth is a planet, when in fact, it is not. Oh! According to Proof 91, Since no likeness has ever been proven to exist between the Earth and the heavenly bodies, the classification of the Earth with the heavenly bodies is premature, unscientific, false. This is a proof that the Earth is not a globe. So, you know, if you're paying attention, you'll notice how sloppy his reasoning is all over the place. But in this case, he is simply saying that since something has not been proven to be true, therefore its inverse is proven to be true, which is not, not at all true the case. at all. Also, special pleading much? <laughs> you know, it, your hypothesis that he's coming from a heavily faith-based... Uh, frame of reference is pretty clear. He has a very geocentrist kind of view of the universe and and how everything works. They go they go hand in hand, yeah. And it's interesting because we think about Galileo being persecuted, a persecution that uh, Carpenter defends, uh, incidentally. Uh, we think of Galileo being persecuted for demonstrating that the Earth mm -hmm. goes around the sun. But what Galileo's observations actually demonstrated was simply that the planet Venus has phases like the moon. And so he, he showed that this was due to the planet Venus going around the sun. So he argued uh, essentially by analogy that the Earth shared all of these characteristics with Venus, thus it was also a planet. And so that was really Galileo's argument. And it wasn't, it wasn't proved. It was, it was inductive reasoning, not right. deductive. Let's get into the, some of the more fun hair splitting here. In Proof 98, Carpenter is responding to Mr. Hind, who is making a particular observation. Mr. Hind speaks of the astronomer watching a star as it is carried across the telescope by the diurnal revolutions of the Earth. Now, this is nothing but downright absurdity. No motion of the Earth could possibly carry a star across a telescope or anything else. If the star is carried across anything at all, it is the star that moves, not the thing across which it is carried. <laughs> so don't ever use the phrase sunrise in Carpenter's presence because he will say, Aha! You betray yourself and you too know that it is the sun that moves and not the Earth. It's a figure of speech, man. Yeah. Oh, cool it. <laughs> That still has nothing on Proof 51, uh, in which English law proves that the Earth is flat. Proof 51. A standing order exists in the English Houses of Parliament that, in the cutting of canals, etc., the datum line employed shall be a horizontal line which shall be the same throughout the whole length of the work. Now, if the Earth were a globe, this order could not be carried out. But it is carried out. Therefore, it is a proof that the Earth is not a globe. Oh, I'm sorry. Our listeners can't see my slow, incredulous blink happening here. 
okay, you're going to bring English law into this, law that was made billions of years after the universe. And I know this guy doesn't believe any of that. I get that. But really, that's what you're going to go with? Also, again, he fails to acknowledge that things can be straight-ish for a very long time. And and at the time that he's writing this, come on, the best measurements are straight-ish. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so he, his argument is that because the order is carried out, and it must, I guess, be carried out perfectly. Always. Um, yeah. Never failing. There, there was there was no micron of deviation yeah. uh, from that horizontal line. Oh God. Okay. Okay. So finally, we come to my favorite argument. Hmm? Proof ninety-five in Cornell's Intermediate Geography, eighteen eighty-one, page twelve is an illustration of the natural divisions of land and water. This illustration is so nicely drawn that it affords at once a striking proof that the earth is a plane. It is true to nature and bears the stamp of no astronomer artist. It is a pictorial proof that the earth is not a globe. I saw a pretty picture. Yeah, the Earth isn't a globe because I saw a nice map once, and that map was flat. So, yeah, so all those maps that have have dragons on them and all that kind of stuff, if they're really beautifully drawn, it makes it true. Direct realism, baby. Oh, my goodness. There be dragons. So if he's ever read and illustrated anything, there's a whole lot of creatures out there. Only if they're pretty creatures. Oh, yes. Only if it's beautiful, I suppose. The proofs do include a couple of empirical claims. The two, the two that I want to mention are actually closely related to two of the main arguments that came up in Behind the Curve. Uh, nothing new under the sun, of course. <laughs> Proof 14. Parallels of latitude only of all imaginary lines on the surface of the Earth are circles, which increase progressively from the northern center to the southern circumference. The mariner's course in the direction of any one of these concentric circles is his longitude, the degrees of which increase to such an extent beyond the equator, going southwards, that hundreds of vessels have been wrecked because of the false ideas created by the untruthfulness of the charts and the globular theory together, causing the sailor to be continually getting out of his reckoning. With a map of the earth in its true form, all difficulty is done away with, and ships may be conducted anywhere with perfect safety. This, then, is a very important practical proof that the Earth is not a globe. So here he's simply asserting that any two corresponding lines of latitude above and below the equator are not, in fact, the, the same circumference, the same length, but the line in the southern hemisphere, or his, as he would put it, the southern circumference, because of course <laughs> there are no hemispheres, the line in the southern circumference is significantly longer than the line in the northern circumference. Okay. Uh, which is what we see in these 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 flat flat earth projections with the central right. north, right? And this is akin to the argument that was made in behind the curve with the airplanes, the right. claim that airplanes never fly through the southern hemisphere because you know or across the southern yeah. southern hemisphere from destination to destination on the southern hemisphere because it's actually a much longer trip than the the globular theory would presuppose. So he's saying that all of these mariners have wrecked their ships because they've they've adopted this globular theory and thus all of their maps are wrong and you know the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn are not in fact the same size the Tropic of Capricorn is much larger which 
uh, pointing out hypocrisy is often sort of a waste of time, but he, <laughs> he did argue earlier that mariners proved that the Earth was flat by not carrying globes, but now they're they're showing that the Earth is flat by subscribing to the globular theory. Anyway, the last thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, actually an experiment that was purportedly performed, maybe by somebody. <laughs> um, this uh, this comes up in the introduction and in the closing matter as well. Carpenter was a, I don't recall what term they used, but he was like a guarantor or like a um, a right-hand man of another flat earther who made a wager with uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, who came up with the theory of evolution by natural selection contemporaneously with Darwin. Okay. Wallace was, of course, a, uh, a Galilean, I suppose. <laughs> Um, it's ridiculous that we're even using these types of words today, right, but go yeah. on. <laughs> he was a globe head. A globe head. And, right. um, and so he and this flat earther had this bet that they could prove that the earth was round or that the earth was not round. And it is funny because it's almost the same experiment that the film Behind the Curve ended with. Uh, in, in the film, they set up a bunch of posts on the water mm -hmm. because the water should be flat if the earth is flat. And it should be rounded, a hill of water, if you will, <laughs> if the Earth is is round. And they, you know, used a laser, and then they couldn't get the laser to work because it was scattering. Uh, so they used lights to sort of show that if they shot this light through two different points, whether it would be blocked or whether it would go through a hole that's supposed to be on the same level. Right, the holes are all lined up at the same height, and it's supposed to go right through. Yeah, and and it didn't go right through. And then they found that when they raised the one at the end, uh, it did go through. So, of course, that shows that the Earth curves. The Earth curves. So this experiment is, is very much a 19th century version of that. I'll quote Carpenter here, uh, who in turn quotes Proctor. Mr. Proctor says, We can set three boats in a line on the water, as at A, B, and C. Then, if equal masts are placed on these boats, and we place a telescope as shown so that when we look through it, we see the tops of the masts A and C, we find that the top of the mast B is above the line of sight. Presumably because of this, right. this hill of water. Right. Now, here is the point. Mr. Proctor either knows or he ought to know that we shall not find anything of the sort. If he has ever tried the experiment, he knows that the three masts will range in a straight line, just as common sense tells us they will. If he has not tried the experiment, he should have tried it, or have paid attention to the details of experiments by those who have tried similar ones a score of times and again. Mr. Proctor may take either horn of the dilemma he pleases. He is just as wrong as a man can be either way. Carpenter goes on and on, claiming that Mr. Proctor said he did this experiment, but he can't have done the experiment, because I know people who say that they have done the experiment, right. and they say that they're all in a line, but Mr. Proctor says they're not. Therefore, Mr. Proctor must be lying, because the people I, the people I trust 
say that he is. <laughs> and, and it's just it's just a bunch of people pointing at each other saying that I did the experiment and him saying, no, you didn't, because if you had done it, you would have come up with a flat right. earth because we know that the earth is flat. I, ju- I just read further in the book. I prove it 100 times. Oh, there's just there's that um, non falsifiability right there. There's nothing that can be said that will dissuade him. I mean, he, he doesn't give any evidence for that other than this guy knows a guy, a friend of a friend did it and he right. said right even if he could have put some names to it it would have offered a slight bit more evidence well in the one time that we do that we do name names we have alfred russell wallace and the fellow um whose name i've already forgotten that he was wagering against we do know the outcome of right. that of that wager and, <laughs> and carpenter's side lost and carpenter I'm assuming would have known the outcome of that. Yes, he's quite sore about it. Well, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this so was it's probably, prior to the writing of this book. So all I'm imagining there was a whole lot of belly aching about oh uh, the middle ship was uh, lighter than the others or something like that that would have altered it or there was a, a, a surge underneath the water or something like that there. These are all the, the types of things that the conspiracy theorists would love to throw out for reasons why they're wrong. These points, uh, talking about this experiment and uh, talking about the lines of latitude being different lengths, the, the separations of the lines of longitude being broader as you go south, these are empirical claims that are in principle tested, but neither you nor I have tested them, right? Right. Perhaps some of our listeners happen to be scientists who have specific direct experience in these matters, but almost certainly not. Because science is, at its core, a collective enterprise. And we do, to some degree, have to trust uh, what has come before us. But we don't trust it blindly, right? It's not a faith. These things are in principle testable and are tested, but not by everyone. Yeah, it can't be. We can't all participate in everything. If you had to prove everything that you knew, soup to nuts, everyone for themselves, you'd never get anywhere. And and one of the strengths of science is that it is a collective enterprise rather than an individual one, because that allows us to stand on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. And as you say, we don't just take things on faith. We have reason why we would believe these things. And we rewrite our knowledge as we learn more about things. And it's hard and there's always sticklers, but we do. It changes over time. And so his assertion at the beginning that scientists just want to support their theories and everything where while he spends a hundred proofs doing exactly what he right. claims they're doing. Said Mr. Pot to Mr. Kettle. Precisely. <laughs> It, it does remind me of uh, preparation for the cars section on the MCAT, where, where we're constantly asked, and, and what would the author do when presented with this new bit of information contradicting their theory? And the answer is always, oh, he would disregard it. <laughs> uh, classic human. <laughs> yeah. I haven't read Kuhn, but there is something to be said for the ha- having to wait for for those with old ideas to die off. You know, we don't always... We're all human. We don't give up on ideas that we've been convinced of um, at the drop of a hat. And we're not always as persuadable as we should be. But the process of science is the best we've got so far. But it can always be improved. So let's, let's keep trying to make it better.
In the show notes, I will link to those uh, videos from Ollie Thorne of Philosophy Tube. And uh, I, I believe last time I mentioned the video from Harry Brewis, H Bomber Guy. Both of them did excellent videos about Flat Earth, and they got more into some of the reasons why people believe these things, as, as well as kind of having fun with some of the more outrageous claims. So thanks for joining me tonight, listeners, and thanks for joining me tonight, Laura, for sitting through this whole segment again a second time. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray to audacity that it won't drop the recording this time. <laughs> Of course. Thank you for bringing this hilarious treatise to light, Jem. Always a pleasure. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. wondering, does anyone who actually lives in the Southern Hemisphere ascribe to the Flat Earth theory? Because we have the Central North. North is top of the world, if you will, or center of the universe in some <laughs> versions. And South always seems to be othered and to the edges and to the extreme. And it's always the place where people should be upside down and they're not. So my question is, yeah, is this a theory that's just a sort of a, a Eurocentric white person thing. I mean, I know not everybody who believes it is is white, but it does seem to have that very Eurocentric, North American-centric flair to it. That's a very good question, and I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> it, perhaps it betrays my own Eurocentric bias that it, it didn't even occur to me that this that this might be. But it seems plausible that it would be less popular in the Southern Hemisphere because they would have more experience with like moving around in the Southern Hemisphere and knowing that distances are not like wildly out of whack the way flat earthers claim. Or maybe, maybe the earth is in fact flat and uh, everyone in the Southern Hemisphere knows it. <laughs> or maybe they have an alternate theory with the Central South and the northern extreme, and the whole thing is flipped. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, you have some Australian flat earthers just with the, the reverse projection. I would love to see that. Oh, it can we get both groups together and have them duel it out? <laughs> and then eventually when they try to merge their two discs, they realize it's a globe. <laughs> no. So if we have any uh, any listeners in the Southern Hemisphere, um, write in. Let us know. Is, is Flat Earth as much of a thing? 